Hello and welcome to Bread. We're a newish, spirit-filled, non-denominational church meeting in the Los Feliz area of Los Angeles, or we hope to be again sometime soon. Everything we do as a church is, as with most of the rest of life, currently happening online. We're not all in the same circumstances, but these days are not easy for most of us, so please know that we're here for you if you need any spiritual or emotional support at all. The Holy Spirit is not held back by coronavirus, and this current teaching series is our response to what we believe he's saying to us as a church, to expect more. God is at work and he is powerful. We're praying that your faith for his presence and power in your own life will be raised as you listen today. So good morning, everyone. I'm standing up, which is interesting, isn't it? And as you will know, if you've been around for the last couple of weeks, we are in the middle of a series about Jesus's miracles. As we've said before, our faith is social. We're called to create and to transform society, but it is also supernatural from start to finish. And without Jesus's supernatural power, we run the risk of not being fully empowered in our ability to actually change anything, uh, however well-meaning our intentions may be. His power is essential. So let us as a church and as individuals be both and. And uh, through this series, we have kind of grouped together Jesus's miracles um, in different categories. Last week, Hannah talked about one of the feeding miracles. We're going to get on to uh, the healing miracles and raising from the dead and Jesus's power over the elements. But this week, very excitingly, we are looking at Jesus's ability to deliver people from demonization. Jesus's power over the demonic demons. Isn't that exciting? From the outset, we need to acknowledge a couple of things. Firstly, a lot of churches just won't talk about this at all. And secondly, even those churches that do talk about it will probably have felt like an online virtual church experience. It's not the best context to talk about it uh, now. It just doesn't really lend itself to a subject that is fraught with both theological and pastoral concerns. Ideally, we'd have a context where we can sit down, we can see each other face to face, we can raise sensitive or contentious issues and sort of thrash it out altogether in a safer environment. But instead, I'm talking into a phone and you're probably still in your pyjamas. Why not just talk about something simple instead, like how much Jesus loves us? Don't worry, that's a question I've been asking myself a lot as I've written this talk this week. But nevertheless, here we are, and of course, the demonic and Jesus's power over it is actually a huge part of his ministry. Read through any of the Gospels and you will see it there nearly on every page. And whilst the concerns that I just mentioned I think are very valid, I do think there's something powerful about not shying away from difficult subject matter, whatever the context. And so I hope I can kind of navigate uh, this subject in such a way as to answer more questions uh, than I do raise. However, if you do have concerns or you do have things that you want to um, discuss further, please feel completely free to email me afterwards. My email address is hannah, H-A-N-N-A-H, at bread.church. That one never gets old. So the reading is probably the most famous interaction Jesus has with a demon, demonized person from Luke's Gospel, chapter 8, starting at verse 24, and this is read by Linnell. Jesus restores a demon-possessed man. They sailed to the region of the Gerasenes, which is across the lake from Galilee. When Jesus stepped ashore, he was met by a demon-possessed man from the town. 
For a long time, this man had not worn clothes or lived in a house, but had lived in the tombs. When he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell at his feet, shouting at the top of his voice, What do you want with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I beg you, don't torture me. For Jesus had commanded the impure spirit to come out of the man. Many times it had seized him, and though he was chained hand and foot and kept under guard, he had broken his chains and had been driven by the demon into solitary places. Jesus asked him, What is your name? Legion, he replied, because many demons had gone into him. And they begged Jesus repeatedly not to order them to go into the abyss. A large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside. The demons begged Jesus to let them go into the pigs, and he gave them permission. When the demons came out of the man, they went into the pigs, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and was drowned. When those tending the pigs saw what had happened, they ran off and reported this in the town and countryside, and the people went out to see what had happened. When they came to Jesus, they found the man from whom the demons had gone out, sitting at Jesus' feet, dressed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. Those who had seen it told the people how the demon-possessed people had been cured. Then all of the people of the region of the Gerasenes asked Jesus to leave because they were overcome with fear. So he got into the boat and left. The man from whom the demons had gone out begged to go with him, but Jesus sent him away saying, return home and tell how much God has done for you. So the man went away and told all over town how much Jesus had done for him. Thank you, Linnell. So if you were to create a spectrum of skepticism, and if you will, skeptrum, where on the one hand you have very skeptical about everything and on the other you have not skeptical at all. I'm not totally sure where belief in personal demonic experience would land. But I think probably for most people, including many Christians, it would be towards the more skeptical end of things. You know, even for those of us who are happy and can get on board with uh, supernatural healing, with supernatural raising of the dead, for supernatural control of the elements, supernatural demonic experience, that is a bridge too far. A little bit, uh, it just sounds all a bit too superstitious or Harry Pottery, which would be a good name for a pottery school. Now, of course, there are some people that have no skepticism whatsoever when it comes to demons. In fact, for them, demons are everywhere all the time. We'll get onto that point in a minute. But for most people, there's a degree of skepticism. And similarly, if we were to create another spectrum, a spectrum of comfort, and if you will, comfortrum, I think it would be a similar scenario. We may believe in the demonic in theory, it's there in the Bible after all, but addressing or engaging in the issue makes us feel a bit uncomfortable, a bit uneasy. So I want to address both of those concerns. Firstly, the issue of belief. Now, at the heart of our Christian faith is, of course, the belief that there is a supernatural personal goodness. We believe that God loved us so much that he became one of us and died for us, resurrected and then filled us supernaturally with his spirit so that we might supernaturally become the greatest people that we could be. We can move from darkness to light and change in ever increasing degrees of glory. So it is entirely rational and logical if we believe in supernatural personal goodness to believe in supernatural personal evil. 
In fact, there's an argument to say that we can't actually have one without the other. And of course, from a biblical perspective, there is no equivocation. Supernatural good and supernatural evil is the biblical reality. Jesus is tempted by the devil in the wilderness, of course. He comes across many demonized people who he delivers. And just by way of one example, Judas is said to have his heart entered by Satan in the run-up to the betrayal. So, if we're going to take our faith seriously and if we're going to take the Bible seriously, we need to actually believe what we believe. Personal supernatural good and personal supernatural evil, this is our reality. Now, when it comes to the comfortum, the spectrum of comfort, and being comfortable talking about the demonic, I uh, think these concerns are more understandable. As I mentioned, there is a strain of Christian belief and practice which puts an awfully large amount of emphasis on demons, and this is disconcerting. Essentially here, demons are responsible for, exclusively, for everything that ever goes wrong, ever. You know, personal responsibility or simply the um, imperfection of an imperfect world, uh, its groaning, the cosmos not working as it's supposed to, both those things sort of take a backseat because of demons. You know, so mental illness, demons. Physical illness, demons. Moral shortcomings, demons. Not getting what we want from life, demons. Any relational conflict at all, demons, demons, demons. And so there's this constant chopping off of demons and loosing demons and binding demons because demons in this uh, thought, uh, in this way of uh, being, are responsible for everything, whatever the pre presenting problem is. And I, we're, I want to say that we're entirely right to be wary of such a belief. Not least because it doesn't line up with what scripture teaches. In fact, the Bible is incredibly nuanced when it comes to the nature of human problems. Matthew 4, 24 says this, news about him, Jesus, spread all over Syria and people brought to him all who were ill with various diseases, those suffering severe pain, the demon possessed, those having seizures, and the paradised, and he healed them. There is here, and this is the point, clear distinction. On the one hand, there are the physically ill, those who were ill with various diseases, suffering severe pain, and the paralysed. On the other hand, there are the demonised. But on the third hand, the third hand, there are the mentally ill. Now, having seizures is not actually a great translation. The Greek word is selatniotzomenos, selatniotzomenos. And it literally means moonstruck, those who stare at the moon. It's actually where we get our English word lunatic from. Luna is Latin for moon. And lunatic is obviously now a kind of pejorative un-PC term, but it literally means the same as selatniotzomenos. It means anyone who is suffering from any kind of insanity, irrational behaviour or seizure. In short, those who are mentally ill. The point being, the Bible draws distinctions. Jesus heals the demonized, but they are not the same as the physically ill, but he also heals the physically ill. And the physically ill are not the same as the mentally ill, who are also not the same as the demonized, but Jesus also heals the mentally ill. So let us all now follow the Bible in our understanding of human illness. Mental illness, physical illness, demonization. Three separate categories. And Jesus' desire is for all of them to be healed. But we shouldn't lump them together. 
And before we move on, a quick word about mental illness. It strikes me that this is, and probably has been for a while, one of the most pressing issues in our country at the moment. Now, I know that there are myriad different factors in this, but just by way of example, suicide rates in this country have increased 35% just in the last 20 years. And of course, the current situation with COVID-19 and the lockdown and people feeling kind of trapped in their homes has only exposed all the more the daily battles that so many people are having with mental illness. So let us as a church take it very, very seriously. We need to use both the natural human tools at our disposal, things like therapy and counselling and community care and prescription drugs when appropriate and when necessary, but also the supernatural tools at our dis disposal. When Paul encourages us to be transformed by the renewing of our minds in Romans, I take that literally. I think that he's saying that as we offer ourselves to Jesus, he, Jesus, by his spirit, literally renews our neural pathways. He heals our minds. And I'm sure um, I, like many of us, have um, experienced times of kind of low uh, mental strength in this time. I wouldn't necessarily call it, in my case, um, depression, but certainly lethargy and clouded thinking and just wanting to escape in my thoughts. But I've got pretty good now, however many millions of weeks we are into this, to actually identifying this and thinking, as soon as I'm feeling this, I've got to get up, I've got to get out, I'm going to go for a run, I'm going to put my headphones in, I'm going to pray, and I'm going to listen to worship music. Worship music, not my favourite genre of music. There are other genres of music I prefer, but I put it on and I go for a run. And I have to say the effect has been transformative. Now, on, on the one hand, of course, there's the human element. We, uh, it's well attested that uh, exercise and fresh air help with our mental state, but also there's the spiritual side of things. And now I'm not saying for one second that all depression, all mental illness is cured by just a quick run and a pray. It obviously isn't. But this is the way in which God can meet us. And I have no idea what the other regular joggers of um, Griffith Park think of me. I was out uh, recently and I was just bawling tears of joy as I listened to worship music and prayed because I felt like God speaking to me and him telling me how much he loved me and that I matter and that I care and that this isn't going to last forever and things will be okay. It really was beautiful. Anyway, back to demons. Firstly, the nature of being demonized. Now, unfortunately, uh, demon possession is a term that is used regularly by both the NIV and actually lots of other translations, but it's not an accurate translation. And the problem with demon possession is it sounds like people have co completely lost all free will as this demon sort of takes over them and is directing everything that happens to them. But the Greek word actually is best translated demonized. And as here in verse 27, it said that the man has demons. These are better ways of understanding it. Because um, to be demonized really just means to be afflicted or tormented or influenced by demons. It's why when John Wimber, the founder of the Vineyard Church Movement uh, and uh, a church movement that we have been strongly influenced by, he was asked, um, can Christians have demons? And he said, Christians can have anything that they want. So that's the nature of demonization. What about the nature of demons? Now, demons are spirits. They are intelligent 
and they are malevolent. You do not get stupid ones and you do not get uh, kind ones. They manifest in different ways and therefore the symptoms can be different. Here it's nakedness, uh, living around in tombs, screaming and shouting, having such unreal human strength of needing to be shackled and held down. As such, it's a pretty severe case and probably got something to do with the fact that there are legion de uh, demons, lots and lots. Elsewhere in scripture, it's more mild. But importantly, on the nature of demons, demons don't want to leave. They rather like tormenting people, thank you very much, and would like to be left alone to do some tormenting. Verse 31. They begged him, Jesus, not to order them to go back into the abyss. Demons do not like to be exposed. So, if by now you are worrying, I wonder whether I've got a demon, I must have a demon. The very fact that you are worrying about that means you do not have one. Demons do not want you to know that they are there. They don't want, they're not going to tell you so you can relax. They don't want to be exposed, but they can't help but being exposed in the presence of Almighty Jesus. Verse 28. When he saw Jesus, he fell down before him and shouted at the top of his voice, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I beg you, do not torment me. For Jesus had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. It's this that I want to concentrate on for the remainder of this talk. Now, when we first moved to LA to come here and to plant the church, we had some of the most powerful times of uh, worship and prayer and experiencing the Spirit. It was extraordinary. I think part of it was because really we had a lot of faith in that moment. And we had a lot of faith because we didn't have a lot of anything else. We didn't have a lot of people. We didn't have a lot of money. We didn't have a lot of expertise. We didn't really have a lot of a clue about what on earth we were doing, but we had faith. And I think Jesus rewarded that faith. And because we were carrying the presence of Jesus with us in that time, we actually had quite a few encounters with demonized people. And to be clear, this wasn't mentally ill people. This was demonized people. Who are you to come here and plant a church? Why are you um, proclaiming the name of Jesus? Sort of stuff. Because Jesus' presence, and that was the presence that we were carrying with us, exposes the demons. And secondly, Jesus' power destroys the demonic. As Hannah mentioned last week, one of the lasting and probably most significant legacies uh, from our church back home in London in the UK was an expectation of God to meet us and move in power at whatever gathering we were in. Now it, like every other church, has lots of problems, but one thing it consistently gets right is the belief and faith, the belief in and, and faith for God doing the same things that he does in the pages of the New Testament with us here and now. So it became completely commonplace for us to see powerful manifestations of the Spirit and, yes, often uh, the demonic being exposed. I remember um, very early on when I'd really just become a Christian, I was at a small meeting. It was actually a business meeting. It was a meeting about planning a weekend. But um, as was customary, we always started all meetings, even business meetings, with worship. And so it was just one worship leader and a guitar and he started playing and we're all worshipping, everyone going for it, and straight away this one guy who's kind of in his mid-30s, well-to-do, um, good-looking guy, 
he uh, had a lot of money, um, he was successful, suddenly he's on the floor kind of spitting and hissing and writhing around. The person leading this meeting just very calmly went straight up to him on the floor, put his hand on his shoulder and with no hype, nothing um, over exuberant at all, just said very calmly but authoritatively, in the name of Jesus, be gone. And in that moment, he was suddenly filled with peace. The demon had left. He didn't even know what had happened. My first direct experience with the demonic was a few weeks after that on a weekend. And there was a guy there who definitely wasn't a Christian, didn't really have any experience of church at all, but he was there nevertheless. And when we invited the Holy Spirit to come, this guy suddenly, with no expectation of anything, he'd really never been in this context before, was on the floor kind of screaming and roaring like a wild animal. It took a number of people to kind of pin him down. But it, all it took was just to say again, in the name of Jesus, be gone, anything that is not of you. Be gone, the demonic, in Jesus' name. And he was gone. And he, this guy's life, has got to be one of the most transformative stories I've ever seen. There's not time to go into it now, but completely changed. He became a Christian, he moved out of the country, whole life was changed. So let us take heart that Jesus, Jesus is Lord over evil. And by all evil, I mean natural and supernatural, out there and in here, corporate and individual. Notice that there is no struggle for Jesus. He commands the demons and they go, they do what he says. He doesn't call on anyone else's authority because he is the authority. And so in the midst of what are, I think, very challenging circumstances for us right now, where we're tempted to look downwards and inwards, let's not lose sight of the majestic power of the God who sits on high. He is on his throne and there is no other name higher than the name of Jesus. There is power in his name and he has won the war. So do not be afraid. We can call on his name and have authority over all demonic activity, all demons, all evil. So as we come to a close, it would not be fair to end a talk on the Gerasene demoniac without mention of the pigs because everyone wants to know about the pigs. The poor, innocent pigs. Why did they have to run off a cliff and die? Won't someone think of the pigs? Now, the truth is, no one knows about the pigs. No one knows anything about the pigs. There's no consensus. Read any commentary you like. No one has an idea what the pig bit is about. It's not uh, um, referenced in any other part of scripture. There are no sort of similarities in other literature. It's just a bit weird. But let us all spend a moment in silence as we remember the pigs. That'll do. What is clear though, is that these pigs were worth a lot of money. This is a Gentile place that Jesus has come to, hence the pigs, and the pigs were a valuable commodity. And the fact that there's a herd of them and a large herd at that means that this was a very valuable asset to this community. But what is going on here is Jesus is saying, all the money in the world, it's not worth anything like one human soul. Even if that human soul is the soul of a troubled, odd person who society has rejected and ostracized. 
someone shackled and naked and living amongst the tombs. That's how much this man is worth to him, and that's how much you are worth to him. Because he knows what he made you to be. And unlike us, he's not so concerned with what we look like now. He's concerned with what we will look like in the future. He's concerned with what we can be when we allow him to meet us, when we allow his power to transform us. What Jesus sees is not this man's present, not even really this man's past, but this man's future. And the picture of that future is quite beautiful. The change in this man is extraordinary. Verse 35. When the people came out to see what had happened, and when they came to Jesus, they found the man from whom the demons had gone, sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind. And my favourite verse in the whole thing, right at the end, verse 39. So he went away, proclaiming throughout the city how much Jesus had done for him. Do you know quite how much Jesus wants to do for you? More than we could ever imagine. But also, do you know quite how much Jesus wants to do for you in how he can use you? The reality is anyone can heal someone in Jesus's power. Anyone can deliver someone from the demonic in the power of Jesus's name. In fact, deliverance is so much more easy than healing, let me tell you. All we need to be is the people who turn up to Jesus and say, use me. When Jesus sends out the 12 disciples, he says, go and do what I've been doing. Heal the sick, cast out demons, and preach the good news. He then sends out the 72, which is really shorthand for saying everyone, do the same. And that's what he says to us. Heal the sick, cast out demons, preach the good news. No one can argue that this city, the city of Los Angeles, has a huge number of people who are afflicted by the demonic. You see it around every street corner, don't you? What if we were people who carried the authority of Jesus, who carried the presence of Jesus, and who carried the ability that Jesus gives us to set people free so that they might be sitting in their right mind, telling people, look what Jesus has done for me. So let us ask him again. Jesus, would you fill us with your power? As the worship begins to play, Let's pray together. Let your kingdom come. Let your name be glorified, God. Would you fill us with your power? Would you fill this place with your glorious name, this whole city, so that evil isn't just exposed, but it flees, that demons are scattered into the abyss, and that your people are set free once again. Amen. In the glory of your presence, I find rest for my soul in the depths.
See you. 